You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening. If you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and take that out. Each week at this time in our gatherings, we look at various sections of the Scripture. And this morning, you can turn to the book of Galatians in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, and then one verse from Galatians 5, 5, 13. If you don't have a Bible, the text is going to be projected behind me on the movie theater screen. You can read along very easily. There's also some Bibles out on the information table, some in Spanish, some in English. You can take one of those. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those actually on your way out. Would love for that to be uh, a gift from us to you, and would love for you to read that. So, Uh, Galatians chapter 4 is where we find ourselves this morning. I'm going to read for us just a few verses, verses 4 through 7, and then chapter 5, verse 13. So let's give our attention to God's word together. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now for your spirit to come and work through your word in our lives so that you would help us to understand what you are saying to us in these verses and to apply them to our lives with your help in ways that are effective. We pray that you would capture our attention and our focus now and that we would give this time to you prayerfully. And we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight today. And so we rely on you and trust you to be at work here among us as we study the Bible together. And we thank you for your disclosing yourself to us in it. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. A man named Simon Sinek wrote a book called Start With Why. That's a great book about uh, organizational leadership and individual leadership. And what he's trying to do in that book is describe what the difference is between really good organizations or companies and just average organizations or companies. And he's given a lot of TED talks, if you're familiar with those that are really well known. And in this book, what Sinak does is, is say that great organizations are made great in large part because they start with the why. And he gives an illustration from one of the world's most famous companies, Apple. He talks about the very beginning of the story of Apple. Wozniak and Steve Jobs were growing up sort of in the hippie environment of San Francisco, and they wanted to sort of stick it to the man, and they wanted to change the status quo, and they wanted to see really the world become a different place. And the way that they chose to do that was through creating computers. And Apple has always, from the very beginning, been well known for using their product to innovate and challenge the way people think about the world. They started with the why. 
Why did they want to make computers? What was their motive? Their motive was that they wanted to see the world change. They wanted to see the status quo erupted. He uses that as an illustration of a great organization. And he says this is an essential part of leadership. This is an essential part of organizational health, that you start with the why, that you begin with your motives. Now, I'm convinced that I'm telling that story because I think that that's also true in our lives individually as followers of Jesus. It's also true for the spiritual life. And so this morning, for a few minutes, we're going to talk about the why together. We're going to talk about motives. Now, this is in the context of our larger series that we began last week called You Can Change. And what we're trying to do in this series is think practically about how our belief in Jesus, if you're a Christian, how does you being a Christian, your belief in Jesus actually make a real tangible difference in your life? How can you actually change things that you don't like in your life or things that are out of accord with God's will in your life and move towards flourishing and the conformity of Jesus. Last week, we began the series by seeing that God's agenda is to change us. He wants to change us into the image of Jesus through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to continue that idea this morning, not by looking about at what would you like to change, that was our question last week, but why? Why do you want to change? And I think this is a very important question to consider as we think about changing in our lives. And the reason it's important is because our motives, our motives empower our behavior. The why question goes a long way to answering the how question. That is, if you know why you want to change, if you have a good motive, if you have good reasons, you will actually be able to implement those changes by God's grace in your life more effectively. So the question of why goes a long way towards forming how we're going to approach the actual process of change. So with that in mind, I want us to think about what the Bible has to say about that idea today by looking at these verses from Paul's letter to the Galatians that expose for us why we should want to change why we should want change in our lives. And here's the way I'm going to summarize the message today. So here's the one sentence main idea. The true motive for change is to enjoy the love of God and the freedom of the Spirit. The true motive for change is to enjoy the love of God and the freedom of the Spirit. That's why we should change. So we're going to look at each of those things in two different points, breaking that sentence up. So let me start first by this point. We are beloved children, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Look at the Galatians passage with me. Let me tell you, in these Galatians 4 verses, there are very few verses in all of the Bible that have had a more profound impact on me than Galatians 4, 4 through 7, just personally. And one of the reasons for that is because theologically, these verses teach what we call the doctrine of adoption, the doctrine of adoption. And what that doctrine means is that when someone believes the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, when someone has faith in Jesus and experiences the transformative power of God's grace for the first time, when that happens, when you're converted, so to speak, you become a son or a daughter of God the Father. You enter into God's family. Your identity has a marked change because you, at the moment of faith, are now a beloved child of God. Look at verses 5 and 6. 
Jesus came to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. You can read daughters into that last word as well. And because you are children, your sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So when you trust Jesus, if you're a Christian, at the moment you believe the gospel, you became a beloved child of the heavenly Father. So what does that have to do with why we should want to change? What does that have to do with motives? Well, it focuses us, it focuses us on the truth that the only motive for change that will be effective in the long run is for each of us to see that we are already that we are already God's beloved. The only effective motive for change is to work out of God's already present love for us. Don't miss that, okay? Stay with me. The only motive for change is to work out of God's already present love for us. It's important for us to hear that because our natural tendency is to work into God's love, to think that we have to earn God's love and favor. That typically is our motive for change, that if we change, God will love us or someone else will love us. But the gospel says, Galatians 4 says, that the motive for change is to believe that we are already God's beloved children. Look at verse 7. Paul says, because of adoption, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So what were we slaves to before we came to know Jesus? Well, the New Testament uses a couple of images to think about that. On the one hand, we are slaves to sin. The Bible talks about that a lot. We are seen as rebels, and sin has this power over us that enslaves us. But on the other hand, what Paul's getting at here is not that we are just slaves to sin, but he says we are also under the law, verse 5 and verse 4. That is, we were slaves to the law as well. Now, that's less intuitive for us, but it's really important for us to get it. How can we be slaves to obeying God's law? Obeying God's law is a good thing, right? It's a holy thing. It's the best thing for us. So how does the law enslave us? And this is the key when we think of motives. Here's how. When your motive for change is to prove yourself by obeying the law, you are actually enslaving yourself. In other words, the law enslaves when it is used as a way for us to gain God's acceptance or favor or to gain the acceptance of someone else in our life. And here's the point. All Christians want to go back to being under the law at times. There's a deep instinct to self-atone within each one of us. What does that look like practically? You might be trying to prove yourself to God because you think that's what it means to be religious or that's what it means to be a Christian. You might sort of have this just natural idea that if you're a good person, God is going to accept you. You might be trying to prove yourself to other people in your change efforts because you want to fit in with a certain group or you want to be respected by your peers. Now, those are, those are very overt ways of thinking about it. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you might be thinking, Pastor, I know God saves me by his grace, so that's not an issue for me anymore. But, but I want you to see that it probably is. 
Let's go a little bit deeper on this idea. Here are a few more entrenched ways in which you can tell if you are living for the approval of God and others or if you're living out of God's prior approval for you. Think about why do I want to make changes in my life? Oftentimes it's because you're living as if you need to work hard to get God's approval or the approval of others. And here's some signs that will show that. First sign, if you have a preoccupation with yourself combined with a critical and judgmental spirit towards others. That's a, that is an absolute marker that you have not yet believed that God is already for you in the gospel, but that you need to earn his favor or the favor of others. When you have a preoccupation with yourself as opposed to a real sense of your own sin and that you've received by faith your new position as a son or a daughter for whom there's no condemnation, that's a sign that you're trying to change because you want approval. Another sign is if you live with what I'm calling here a performance lifestyle, a performance lifestyle for yourself as well as for others, to where nothing is ever actually good enough. You know, does that make sense to anybody or is it just me? Maybe just me. You're never satisfied. You're never happy. Uh, that's the opposite of believing in the gospel, which enables you to be gentle and patient with others and with yourself. Another way that you can see if you're living for the approval of others and for God is when you're dominated in your life by your fears and anxieties and not resting in the promises of God during the week. And then finally, you know that you're struggling in motive ideas to find approval for, with God and others when you find it really hard, if not impossible, to forgive people. If you've been hurt, if you've been wronged, even in very significant ways, and you find it almost impossible to move forward in forgiveness, that is likely a sign that you're seeking God's approval and the approval of others and not resting in his prior approval for you in Jesus. So those are just a few examples of how we often are motivated to change because we think if we do enough, God will love us or others will love us. So why is that such a bad motive for change? Why is seeking the approval of God or, or others such a bad motive? Well, just very pragmatically, it doesn't work, for one. It's not going to work. But more importantly, it's a bad motive because it makes you the center and not God. So it is doomed to fail. Here's how uh, Tim Chester in his book that I mentioned last week, You Can Change, here's how he puts it. Trying to impress God, others, or ourselves puts us at the center of our change project. It makes change all about my looking good. It is done for my glory. And that's pretty much the definition of sin. Sin is living for my glory instead of God's. Sin is living life my way for me instead of living life God's way for God. Listen, friends, listen, what frees us to change is when we believe that we don't have to try to prove ourselves because God has already made us his children by his grace. We don't have to fear God's disapproval because, as Paul says in these verses, we have the spirit of his son in our hearts crying, Abba, Father. And the motive for any change in your life that you want to make, the motive for change is to understand 
that if we're Christians, our identities have been radically and forever altered when God's grace in Jesus entered our stories and we were brought into God's family. We are already his beloved children. He already delights in us. And trusting that to be true motivates us to please God and honor God in our lives because we know he loves us so much already. When we can get that, we're motivated not any longer by fear of disapproval, but out of confidence in our approval. I read a story this week um, about a young girl named Sophie who grew up her early years as an orphan who spent some time on the streets. Very rough life. She saw more in her first you know, five or six years of life than many of us will see in a lifetime. And she was adopted by a loving family when she was about six years old. And during her first days in her new home, <clears throat> she, would, she would stalk around the house nervously, fearing uh, perhaps one of the beatings she was used to getting if something got broken, right? Uh, the toys that were in her room went untouched. She just couldn't quite believe that they were hers. And at dinner time, her adoptive parents would find her stuffing food into her pockets when no one was looking because she had never known when she would get her next meal. And so anytime she would find food, she would want to save it for later. It was a very hard first few months in that family, but after about a year, after about a year of Sophie living with her parents, listen to what her mother said. She said about Sophie one year later, Sophie crawled into bed with me last night because she was having a bad dream. She curled up next to me. She put her head on my chest. She told me that she loved me. She smiled and she went to sleep. Listen, the moment she was adopted, Sophie had a new identity, a new family. From day one, she had become a child in a new household. But initially, right, initially she still lived like a child of the street. Her actions and her attitudes were shaped by her old identity. But as she believed and sort of embedded her life more and more in her new family, in her new status as an adopted daughter, as she more and more saw the love of her mom and dad for her, her behavior was transformed. And that's exactly what it's like for Christians. Christians, too, have a new identity. We are God's sons and daughters. At the moment of faith, there's a radical break with our past. We are adopted children. And the motive for change that we're going to see playing out in our lives by faith is as we believe that to be true more and more and more, that we are beloved of God. And so we don't have to prove ourselves. Isn't that good news? It's good gospel news. And that's the first motive that's the first reason why you should want to change. Not so that you can earn God's favor, but because God, by his grace, has given you freely in Jesus his favor already. Paul gives us another reason, though. He tells us first that we are beloved children, so we don't have to prove ourselves. But also in these verses, we see that we are free in the spirit, so we can delight in obedience. We are free in the spirit, so we can delight in obedience. In other words, we should want to change because the Holy Spirit 
when we believe the gospel enters into our lives and frees us to obedience. He frees us to delight in God's good law. Let me try and explain that by laying out its opposite. Think about this with me. A lot of the time, our motive for changing, our motive for changing is that we don't want to continue to experience the bad consequences of our negative behavior or negative decisions. Um, in other words, we will change bad habits and bad attitudes not because we love to do what is right, but because we get tired of the consequences of doing what is wrong. Make sense? If you're a parent, well, heck, parents, we see this in our own lives. Let's not pick on our kids too much. And we do this, but you definitely see it with your children because they're not as good at hiding these things as adults are yet. But, but with your children, um, we see this illustrated all the time. Let's say one of your children speaks disrespectfully to you, for example. Or let's say they act selfishly towards a sibling. Perhaps if you're a good parent, you will give them a consequence, right? A good consequence in our house is no screen time. Ah! End of the world. <laughs> no iPad. That consequence works for now. Uh, that, and so perhaps the children will stop their behavior. Perhaps they won't be as disrespectful or they'll be kinder to their siblings. But often, listen, right? The real reason that they stop is not because they delight in obedience. We can't make them do that, by the way. The Spirit can make them do that, but we can't. It's because they don't want the repercussions and they're afraid of them. So their motive for change is they fear consequences of bad behavior, not because they delight in the joy of good behavior. You with me? And we're the same in our Christian life. We might make some changes, but it is often not because we delight in following God's law, but because we just don't want to feel the pain of his fatherly discipline. And, and let me tell you why that matters. What that sort of lifestyle, what that sort of mindset leads to very quickly, and especially over time, is duty-driven, drab, joyless Christianity. It creates Christ followers who might obey, but they have this suspicion underneath that they're missing out on what's really enjoyable and fun and life-giving. So fear of consequences are bad motives as far as ultimate motives because they don't help us obey the greatest commandment. They don't help you love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The motive to avoid consequences leads, perhaps, to fearful outward obedience, but not free, heartfelt, spirit-given obedience. In Jesus' parable of the two sons, the prodigal son, is, as it's well known, this is beautifully illustrated with the older brother. Remember, the younger brother runs away, seeking his fame and fortune and blows it all in uh, foolish living and comes crawling back home and his father lovingly opens his arms in gracious forgiveness and acceptance of his child, which is a beautiful picture of what God does for sinners like us when we return to him in faith. And the older brother who's stayed at home and done his job and always obeyed, he thinks, is sitting outside, standing outside, angry about this. They throw a big party for the younger brother when he comes home. And the older brother in Luke chapter 15 says, Dad, come on, all these years I have served you. I have never disobeyed, he says to his dad. 
but you never threw me a party. And the father responds, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. The older son we see there is obeying, yes, but he's obeying out of drudgery and not out of delight. So the father invites the older son. He invites him into the delight of obedience. And the, the Bible teaches us here that the Holy Spirit frees us to live that way. The Holy Spirit frees us to live in the delight of obedience. The Spirit, we read in these verses, is in our hearts crying out, helping us to cry out, Abba, Father. And verse 13 of chapter 5 says, He gives us freedom, freedom from sin, freedom to walk in righteousness. You are called to freedom, Paul says. So use your freedom, not as an opportunity for the flesh, but to serve others in love. Okay, here's the point, okay? Here's the point. Real change happens in your life when you see that becoming more like Jesus and obeying God is not sad, dutiful drudgery, but actually it's true joy. Obedience does involve self-denial. Sometimes obedience is hard and painful, but true self-denial leads to gaining true life. That's why Jesus says in Mark, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. When we begin to see that becoming like Jesus, that obeying God's law, that working to change our life in faith actually leads us to real delight, actually leads us to real joy, that will inspire and motivate continued change. I find it really interesting that the Bible uses this sort of language of delight and joy when it's talking about obeying God all the time. Let me just give you two examples. Isaiah 55. We use this for our call to worship. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for what, that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. You hear what's happening there. God is inviting you to listen to him, to obey him, to follow his law, because in that life there is delight. In that life, there is water, there is wine, there is milk, there's rich food. The language, the imagery there is uh, the life well-lived, a life of flourishing and joy. Psalm 1 is another example. Let me just read the first three verses. Blessed, happy, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his what? His delight his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see there, to summarize, we are all motivated to change when we see that loving God and obeying God and following God is what will actually lead us to real delight, to real flourishing, the disobedience and the foolishness of sin can never give us what it promises, but God does. He gives us what he promises, and he gives it to us for free. When you can get that, when the Spirit is working that into your, that truth into your life, 
then it will motivate you to change. Listen, some of us have spent a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to change, trying to conform into Jesus' image maybe even, trying to obey, but for all the wrong reasons. We do it to prove ourselves worthy, or we do it out of a begrudging sense of our own spiritual duty. And, and that's why I find it so interesting about those Isaiah and Psalm texts. They use language of delight. The life of changing into Jesus' image is the best possible life, even in its self-denial. God is inviting us into what he says here is a, a banquet of joy. He's calling us to taste and see that the Lord is good. He is worth following. He is worth our obedience. And, and friends, it makes all the difference in the world that we experience that truth by faith through the Spirit and not just give intellectual assent to that truth. Jonathan Edwards uh, makes that point in one of his sermons called A Divine and Supernatural Light. Here's what Edwards says. There is a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense on the heart of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. The difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of its sweetness. You will want to change, not just when you have a rational belief that following God is sweet, but when you have a sense, a sense of its sweetness. And through the Holy Spirit, God is at work giving us that even now, right now. So here's my concluding question for you this morning, friends. Do you want to change? And if so, are you motivated to change something in your life because you have an actual sense of the sweetness of living for God? Are we motivated to change because we are delighting in our adoption into God's family by His grace? Are we motivated to change because we believe that God is singing over us with His love and we want to gratefully live for Him? Those are the only real motives that have the power to impact your behavior, your thoughts, your lifestyle. Let me close with uh, one more quote from a man that I quote often. Uh, he was a priest who died some years ago, very well-known 20th century author named Henri Nouwen. I highly recommend that you read his work. And here's what he says in his book, Life of the Beloved. Listen to this, and we'll close with this. God says, I love you with an everlasting love. And Jesus came to tell us that. For us to work for justice and peace and really be activists in the good sense of the word, parenthesis, for us to want to change, to work to change. To do that is, not, is to do it not because we need to prove ourselves or anybody, to prove to ourselves or anybody that we are worth loving. Rather, it is because we are so in touch with our belovedness that we are free to act according to the truth. Once I know I am beloved, I start discovering that as the Spirit works in me and in others, we can do wonderful things. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that not only have you promised to change us 
but you actually give us really good reasons to, by faith, join you in that work. You give us motives, you give us incentives to want to grow into the image of Jesus, to grow in holiness, to obey you and follow you and trust you. And those, aren't, those motives are not so that one day, if we do good enough, you might accept us. That's the way we're used to living God, but that's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is you accept us, forgiving our sins, casting them away from us as far as the east is from the west through Jesus' death for us, and bring us into your family. You make us your beloved children, your sons and your daughters, and you do that freely by your mercy, not because we've earned it or deserved it or merited it in any way. And so, God, we pray that that would inspire us to want to live for you out of gratitude and not out of a sense of drudgery. And we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would help us to see the delight of obedience because we are no longer under the law, because we are free. May we more and more believe and acknowledge in our day-to-day lives that serving our neighbors in love, that obeying your law is what will make us, as Psalm 1 says, like a tree that's planted firmly by streams of water that bears fruit in its season. Father, we want to be like that. That sounds like a wonderful image, and yet we struggle. So will you please help us to trust that you are for us in the gospel, and may that make a difference, we pray in Jesus' name.